Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today, my guest is Lenny Ollinson. How are you doing, Lenny? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Fantastic. So you work at Paradox Interactive as a art director. Do you want to tell us uh, and you know the audience a little bit about what Paradox is, if you know they don't know, and you know what an art director is, and you know and what they do at Paradox? Yeah, of course. So Paradox Interactive mostly works with uh, grand strategy games such as Stellaris, Crusader Kings, Victoria, and similar games. I also have a broader portfolio of games um, that they're handling through publishing. Um, but in general, they mostly focus on the strategy games and strategy genre. Um, as an art director there, especially since the current title I'm working on is Crusader Kings 3, I'm sort of a custodian of the project, meaning I maintain the current artistic vision of the game and support the art directors to make sure that new projects are visually, um, how can you put it, uh, visually adding to the gameplay experience, uh, immersing the gamers more into the game and the game mechanics as they play. And of course, then adding new elements into the game as we also add new mechanics to make sure that we keep the overall feeling for the players. So usually what I do as an art director is when we work on new DLCs is that I will work in a bit, uh, in a bit advance of the team and I will start looking at the game direction document and define you know, like the key pillars. What is it that we're looking at here? What are the major components visually that I want to reinforce and how they should look like? So sketching things out a bit, talking to the designers, ensuring that what we are going to be making visually fits with the overall gameplay. And then once that has sort of been broken down to a general, was like high, um, like general pillars of the art direction for the new DLC, then I will then communicate with the art team, usually the leads and specific people will join in early in the concepting phase. And then we'll sort of further explore on those uh, initial pillars, those initial designs um, together also with designs as well. Okay. And at Paradox, you know, Paradox has made, you know, loads of games over the years. What specific titles have you worked on and are working on? What specific, sorry? Uh, you know, titles or specific games? Um, currently, I'm working specifically, and also when I started at uh, Paradox, I worked on Crusader Kings 3 from beginning until now, so over the past two and a half years now. Okay. And for a game like Crusader Kings, how many art directors would you typically have on a project like that? Well, we only have the one. We have one per project. Okay. Um, so, I mean, currently for Crusader Kings 3, when I joined on, they had already started development on the uh, DLC um, Royal Court. Uh, mm -hmm. So that one I continued on and took it on till fruition. And further than that, we've then been working on the uh, Fate of Iberia expansion and the Tours and Tournaments, which just released a few months ago as well. Uh, and then, of course, more DLCs uh, going on in the background, of course, in development. Okay, then. So, because Crusader Kings was already, you know, underway in terms of development, and you was, you know, working on some DLC when you joined, hmm. did the pre? I mean, I'm guessing it's safe to say there was a previous art director, and they yes, moved exactly. to a different project, or they left, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I think the previous art director when I joined was already was the current art director for Victoria Three, 
Yeah. Um, so I basically took over from him because, of course, working on two projects simultaneously is a, <laughs> a bit much. Um, so I took that over for him. He already had a very nice vision laid out from, for the Royal Court that I then continued working on and then polishing and adding more features to, of course. But I mean, the general layout was already there and I saw no reason to sort of shake things up partway through production. Okay, so you just basically jumped right in to mm. where you know he you know he left off. Okay, and as you know, as an art director, how important is it to you know look at obviously past games because it's not the first one in the mm. series, and also other games as well. You know, from the competition, for example, see what the state of the you know the industry is like, or is that left to someone else and that's fed into you? No, no, that's, of course, important for all director roles, but also for the team in general, right? To try to see what the competitors are doing. Is there anything that, you know, that we could use in our current game that fits with the style that we and the gameplay that we are currently using? Um, and we also look at, like, if we're making new games in the future, what is currently happening in the, uh, in the sphere of, you know, strategy games, grand strategy games? Um, from competitive side, is there something that seems to be, is there something that the fans want, something that they're lacking, something that we might be able to put into a future expansion or future game um, to sort of capitalize on that need um, from the fan side, right? Uh, but yeah, we try to keep a track of things that's happening in industry as much as possible. Of course, this is more relevant when you're starting a new game than when you have an ongoing project. Not to say that it isn't relevant in an ongoing project, but usually when you start out anew, then you really try to look at what is currently existing in the market, what might come in the future as well, and try to see like where can you, what niche do you fit into? What is your core fan base? What is the expectation for this type of game? And try to see how you can set yourself aside from the competition, of course. But similar things does happen while you're in production uh, of DLCs, of course, but to a lesser extent, usually. Okay, that's uh, you know, it's definitely you know interesting. So you know, what sort of prior experience you know does one have when you know trying to become an art director, and obviously specifically, what prior experience did you have as well? Because you mm. joined in twenty twenty one, and you know, before that, you were that you know some other companies as well. Yeah, exactly. So in the past, for a lot of art directors, they came from a two D background, so illustration, concept art fits quite well when you're trying to. Um, concept a new game title or it, um, ideas for a DLC that work quite well. It, there has been a bit of a change over the recent years that is going more towards people with a 3D background who might also be able to do 2D or vice versa. So it's more of a demand on technical expertise for art directors than there were in the past, um, more like part of the, the general development cycle um, as well. So my background comes from originally I was a concept artist and illustrator and then started learning um, 3D art through a uh, vocational education um, in those, the game assembly in Malmö. And then worked my way up as an environment artist uh, through different companies such as I worked at uh, IO on the Hitman project and Forza Horizon at Playground Games and Avalanche as well and King as well in the, in the, uh, in the past trying out mobile games as well. So I worked from a, of course, intern, junior environment artist, then worked up to lead, and then later on, when I joined Paradox as an art director. Okay. And you mentioned that 
you know, like an art director would typically come from like a 2D, you know, artist background. You know, why is that? Because, you know, when you look at Crusader Kings, it's not 2D. I mean, it's not like your normal type of 3D, like Call of Duty, for example, mm-hmm. but it's what, what do we call it, what, 2.5D or 3D with a certain, you know, vantage point? It's definitely not 2D. Yeah, exactly. It's more of like an isometric perspective. Yeah. Um, so it's still 3D. Of course, the world is does exist and it is in 3D. We do work a lot more with menus. Uh, so UX and UI is exceptionally important in this game. We also work a lot with illustrations. So illustrators are really important. We use them for event images to provide flavor for events that happens. Um, and of course, like 2D artists, one of the reasons why they have in the past at least been very much preferred, still is in some projects, of course, uh, as art directors is because what we're doing is that we're setting the art direction, we're setting the style, and being able to sketch that out, concept that out, is obviously faster than doing things in pure 3D, depending on, of course, the type of games you're doing. Today, with mega scans and other similar tools, you can do it all faster. Um, but historically, it has been faster to like test out ideas, test out looks and styles through a concept art background. That makes perfect sense. Um, And then when you go more towards the production, then the art director is more there to review on specific areas. Like, you know, is the the props that have been made, are they fitting the general feel that has been sketched out before? Is the scenes in alignment with the ones that have been sketched in art direction and similar? Um, That's also like even today when you're having uh, art directors who have a 3D background, either a character or environment or similar, there's still a preference towards art directors who are able to, at least to some extent, sketch out ideas. Because when you provide feedback, verbal feedback, sometimes can be very difficult to give for specific art assets or environments or similar. So explaining to someone that something feels off is a very sort of like famous uh, quote. When you, when you like the worst feedback you can give an artist is that something feels off, right? That's not helpful. And the artist will then stare themselves blind and image trying to find potential flaws where there might not be any. Um, so being able to provide paint overs, sketch out, you know, like it feels a bit off. I think, um, you know, removing some of the details on this side of the image, uh, will lean the composition a bit better, apply some more colors here to help lead the eye for the player. So they know what route they're supposed to take. Things like that. Just being able to sketch it out is like a huge help in providing feedback because you don't really want to go in and actually do the artist's work for them. Like if I go in and start editing in compositions, in scenes directly, sort of like provide a final sketch of what I want, that both take away from the artist's work and then and their feeling of ownership and also takes away from their motivation. So that's something that I strive not to do. Uh, the art director should not really be doing much of the final art that is in game. They might be able to help with benchmark assets early on in production to help set, you know, like this is the general look and feel like you have in the style guides. So depending on the background the art director has, they can then set uh, benchmarks for how things should look. Um, but once production hits the uh, the ground, you shouldn't really go in, at least in my belief, you shouldn't go in and start editing the artist's work directly. Okay. And, you know, as an art director and just like a, you know, in the art, you know, industry in general, you know, previous to Paradox, you worked at King, you know, Mm -hmm. both those companies make a lot of games. 
they make you know very top tier games in their respective sort of industries and you know formats but they're very different in terms of you know the way they look you know the mm. art style obviously king you know her focus is heavily on like 2d uh, uh and you know you know paradoxes you know they have a lot of 3d games how do you you know you know bring your experience that you have from previous roles and previous projects to the next one without it being you know derivative and also feeling like okay you know you can tell that person worked on i don't know if you worked on candy crush at king but you know you can just tell he's worked on candy crush for example they're like bringing those mechanics or that sort of you know design over how do you prevent yourself from you know bringing it over and but bringing your core skills Hmm. Well, I think for one, it's quite rare to have someone who comes from a, a previous experience in into a new company as an art director who only has experience from one studio. It's of course possible, but it then tends to be a studio who has done more than one game and they would have worked on more than one game. Most sort of uh, job postings for art directors tend to require that you've worked on several games to avoid that exact issue. Um, so of course I've worked in at King, not on Candy Crush specifically in the past, but other projects. Uh, and I think the experience I bring with me from there is things such as UX, you know, like um, how can we guide the players as well as possible through menus? We do have a lot of those in um, in Crusader Kings as well, where we can sort of like look at, you know, how can we improve the feeling of um, like using these menus? And I think a lot of the experience I then had from working at King and working with mobile games where it's super important that the players has like an intuitive grasp on what buttons does what and the kind of feedback you get while playing the game is something that I would then try to implement here. Not in the form of, you know, like you get stars and, you know, like explosions of color, more in form of getting like, you know, tactile feedback for the player, right? It feels good to make this decision in game. I see when something is supposed to be interacted with um, new elements added in new decisions to take it's something that in the player gets informed of through the ui is something that i've been trying to implement more here so that can be some of the experience i've taken with me from king in the past and then other experience from other companies and games that i worked on in the past of course but nothing from any one of course of course. So Crusader Kings, you know, it's the third one in the series. You know, had you played the previous ones or not? No, I actually haven't played Crusader Kings 2 before. So when I joined first, of course, even before I joined, I sat down and started playing Crusader Kings 3 because I hadn't actually played it before. I was aware of the game. I had watched playthroughs before, but I hadn't really played the game before. So one, usually through like how much I work in the games industry, I don't spend that much of my free times actually playing game. I usually watch playthroughs to get an idea of as many games as possible and to spend my time more efficiently. Um, so of course, when I started a company, I then try to play the games as much as possible to get a more, a better understanding from you know like a player perspective of what are the things that the game does really well what is the sort of fantasy? What is the immersive aspect of the games? What do I feel it might not do so well? And while doing that, of course, also like read views on Reddit, YouTube, you know, try to get an idea of, you know, like what is the fan base? What is it that they are super hyped about? What is it that they dislike about the current game? Also read on what are the comparisons to similar or previous titles of this game? So in this case, we had Crusader Kings 2 before, which is great because then I can sort of extrapolates some data about what the fans enjoyed about that title more than enjoy on 
perhaps the newer one or things that they would want to have implemented in the Criticum 3 version. Okay, I want to, you know, dive into, you know, one thing that you, you know, said about, you know, playing games or, you know, that you don't play as many games as you probably used to because, you know, you're in the industry, you're, you know, you've got games uh, and, you know, everything to do with games around you, you know, for like eight hours a day, possibly more, and, mm-hmm. you know, your, you know, gaming is, you know, reduced because, you know, I've heard that from a lot of people before not just in the gaming industry let's say if they're uh, you know a programmer for example you know when i spoke to them about you know do you do any you know programming projects you know for yourself especially because when they're younger you know they would you know like a university but do you do it now and i i get a very similar answer from many people that you know they're you know exposed to so much of your work they you know want to disconnect they would want to you know, either feel fresh when they come out, you know, whatever it is, you know, they don't do it as much. How do you feel about that? Uh, because, you know, gaming is usually a, you know, pleasurable, you know, activity. It's something mm. that I think a lot of people have fond memories of and, that, you know, can create fond memories when you go into, you know, adulthood. And a lot of people, if they have a non-gaming job, the, you know, they might come home if they ha- if they can, you know, spare the time. They might play some games to be able to, you know, wind down. So, how does that make you feel that you are consciously making a choice to, you know, game less? Mm. It's not so much a conscious choice; it's more of a separation. So, normally, like when I play games, and I still do, of course, from time to time, I'll play with friends, and then specifically try to avoid games that I. Uh, might spend a lot of time into. So it's mostly just focused on just, you know, actually sitting down talking with friends while playing the games. And then it's okay. games that are more, you know, what can you say, like not so so involved, like, you know, simple action games um, or, you know, more of a uh, play and let go kind of games, um, like hyper casual games in a way, right? So just talk with friends while playing, try not to, focus too much on the details because that's a very normal problem to fall into when you're working in industries whenever you're playing a game you're at the same time in the back of my mind of uh especially for me it's like in the back of my mind i'm like looking at things in the games like wondering how did they make this is this tiling textures they're using here is this a modular asset what method did you use over here it's like oh i see they like they purposefully are trying to make me go down this route instead of this one I wonder why they chose to do it this way. So I'm like, there's a constant commentary in the back of my hat and reviewing the games that I play, which just doesn't make it as pleasurable as it did in the past. Um, so there, so I try to pick games which are quite different to the ones that I'm working on deliberately and then play them with friends to try, try to get my mind out of that kind of thinking. And then usually because, of course, I need to experience as many games as possible to keep up to date with the industry. Then I normally watch playthroughs that I can also do during my work time. So I have, I have several screens set up. So I have one with like YouTube playthroughs on similar games or just new games that are popular to see, you know, like, what are they doing? Because even if they aren't specifically strategy games or grand strategy games, there can still be things to be learned from, you know, like how they are doing their characters, how they're doing the environments, the UI, especially. There can be a lot of things to learn from other games there, even then if they aren't in the same genre. Um, other than that, I just enjoy uh, going on places like ArtStation, Behance, and things like that to just like get a new perspective of like new techniques, new um, 
like say, new fats in our industry. Um, that might be something we can implement in the future. Just something to get, you know, new perspective, new eyes um, to look at things. Okay, and, and so, so you're just talking about, you know, you you try and play games that you know aren't so involved. You know, you mentioned hyper casual, which is you know usually associated with you know mobile games, but you also said you know playing with friends as well. Like, can you give some examples of the sort of games that you would and do gravitate towards to mm. fill that, and the games that you stay away from the type of games and with some examples because you know they'll be so involved and the amount of hours and also the concentration level would be too intense for what you're looking for. Yeah, I think usually it gravitates more towards more towards like action games, uh, PC mostly. I, I don't really play that much mobile games, um, but usually I play PC games. Currently, I'm playing a, a title that one of my friends worked on in the past. Uh, so we're playing as a Dead Island. Um, so we're just going through that game, and it's easy to just have fun and talk while we're playing that. It doesn't really require too much, like you know, thinking while you're playing. It's just action. If we die, it's fun. We laugh about it. You start over and you go again. Um, so these type of games that are just like easy to just talk while you play is the ones I enjoy the most. Um, otherwise, it's like many great games like uh, Elden Ring and games like that that might be a bit more involved, more hectic. Uh, is probably something I would try to gravitate away from. Uh, but of course, watch on playthroughs to sort of get a good experience of the game. Um, but something that I know I would sink a lot of hours into because I really enjoy that type of games. Okay. And, you know, whilst you was a king, you was a lead environment, you know, artist, mm. you know, what, you know, does that specifically involve and how is that different to an art director? Plus, what games did you work on at King? Mm. So at King, I worked in a new games unit. So the games I worked on has not been released. And so, of course, I can't say specific, um, but I worked on games that were used more 3D elements uh, in there. So my job there... As a lead environment artist, it's a bit similar to art director, but specifically focused on the environment. And I don't really do the front-loading art direction. There is an art director for that. So what I did as a lead is that I would then work with the art director to sort of understand what the art director wanted, what kind of you know style we were going for, what the general look for new levels would be, and then ensure that the team followed that as much as possible. Right. So. As an art director, you are in charge of several disciplines at the same time. So you cannot really be down nitty gritty on what everyone is doing every day. As an art director, you rely on the leads to sort of go in and do that and be more aware of what people are doing and giving more moment to moment feedback. And then as an art director, you then step in on sort of like weekly reviews or similar, depending on what you want and what type of director you are, of course. Um, but then to try to give a bit more to the team to sort of like handle and then step back and try handle things ahead of time, I would say. Okay. So you mentioned that the project that you worked on at King, you were there from October 2020 to June 2021. So you left a couple of years ago. Hmm. It still isn't out. So it's been in development for three years, maybe more. Like, is that typical for a, you know, King game? Because when, you know, you know, when I look at a King game, let's say like Candy Crush, though it's a big complex game, I don't, you know, think it would take three plus years to make. Mm. Is is that just more unique to this title or is it because they're larger now and there's more at stake with each project and launch that they're spending more time? What's the situation with that? 
Well, of course, I can't go too much in depth with the okay. project specifically, but what the new games unit mostly do is that they will explore new concepts, right? So they will work on mockups, they'll try things out, they'll do maybe some user research. And then if it doesn't do well, they will then jump onto something else. So that does not mean that the project is even currently ongoing. It might or might not be, or if it is still ongoing, it will likely have changed its form in some way to match um, uh, the user research that they have returned. Maybe they didn't do well in specific areas that they wanted it to do well and have then make adjustments since then, which of course could make the development take longer or they would have decided to do something completely different because it did not hit the market in a way that they would want. Okay. You mentioned that, you know, you're a PC gamer, so, you know, PC Master Race. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> that's, you know, what you gravitate towards. Uh, and, you know, that's what Paradox, you know, you know, heavily specializes in. But King, you know, as we probably all know, you know, Candy Crush, for example, and some of the other games are, hmm. you know, mobile-based. So, you know, did you, like... How did you sort of adjust to that? And did you like play more mobile games as a result? And oh, yeah. like, was that ever a thing that, okay, you know, you're, you're not enough of a mobile gamer? No, no, exactly. When I joined, I had, of course, played Candy Crush before in some mobile games, um, but I wasn't like an avid mobile game player. Mm. So when I joined there and saw the, the new game that they've been working on, I quite enjoyed it. It was a very interesting game like a bit different from what they had been working on in the past um and i would basically play that like every day for at least half an hour to just like test out you know the changes that we that we've made the levels help debug as well um that's something i quite enjoyed with mobile games it's a bit easier to just pick up and put down especially when it comes to testing whereas in pc games if you're testing something it's generally a bit more involved. It takes a lot of time. And whenever there's something that goes wrong, it can be a myriad of reasons why something went wrong. There's so many variables involved here um, that it's it can be quite hard to debug the exact reason why you had a soft crash or a hard crash, or even why certain things did not play out the way you expected them to. Um, so that was definitely something that was quite enjoyable about working in mobile is that the iteration was really quick. Um, when you had an idea or when you saw a potential issue, the time to test out ways of fixing it, alleviating the issue, or playing alternatively or trying alternative playstyles was really, really quick. Uh, so you could go from having pretty much like a blank canvas to having a testable demo in just a few weeks, at least with the talent that was on the team when I was there. Okay. And, you know, has your time at King, you know, changed the way you, you know, access and, you know, look at gaming? Because, you know, like you said, you, you know, heavy PC gamer. Uh, has your time at King made you a bit more of a mobile gamer? Or was it just like, you know, you obviously played it a bit more whilst you was at that role, but then afterwards you just went back to your, your normal PC gaming? I would say I now permanently have Candy Crush on my phone. So I do play it from time to time whenever I'm either flying or waiting in the airport or similar where I don't really have access to that many other means of uh, what can say like playing games. Um, so it's definitely something that I then gravitate to when I have like some downtime there. Um, but I wouldn't say I play much more than I did before. Um, okay. But yeah, I think it definitely influenced some ways that I viewed mobile games, whereas in the past I didn't play too much. I tried once in a while, but never really got like hooked on mobile games now sort of see it in a different way after having worked on it, especially knowing a bit more about 
how you sort of uh, work with um, usability, especially in the UI, like how important that is and how you can guide players to certain behaviors while they're playing the mobile game to engage in mechanics that then make them feel better about playing the game. You know, like you get, you would keep testing things out, you know, like, does this feel rewarding to the player? Does it not? And it's very few things you have to actually put together to change the entire reward aspect and have players feel better about playing the game. And then trying to balance that with the difficulty, you know, like how often is it okay to fail before you then actually lose motivation and stop playing the game? And how often do you need to fail to stay motivated to, you know, be extra happy when you win? And this sort of mentality and then playing around that was something I hadn't really done that much before because typically with PC games, the time to start until you lose tend to be a lot longer. So there's more forgiveness if the play experience might not be perfect, right? Because it takes significantly longer for you to lose, usually in a PC game. But we have seen PC games that have started incorporating more of these elements recently, or I don't know how recently there's been games like this in the past as well, like such as Fall Guys and other games um, that are like hyper casual, but on PC, that has similar sort of mechanic that try to make sure that people are enjoying it as much as possible, even if they are losing very quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I played Fall Guys. I used to play it on PlayStation, but yeah, it, it definitely you know gives you that you know feeling. It's because you're not waiting too long to get back into it, for example, mm. and you know it's just quick, easy, and it's the mechanics. It's one of those games that it's easy to get into, easy to learn the controls and the way it works. But you know, there's a little it's just, you know element of difficulty to master it especially you know let's say to be on you know, the in the top five you know every single time you know past the line so there's definitely you know an element of you know challenge there as well so yeah game like four guys have definitely bridged the gap you know have you ever thought about you know platform like the nintendo switch or something like the steam deck which is more like a pc but in like kind of a console but handheld format well, I believe you can currently play Crusader Kings Three on the Steam Deck. I do have a Steam Deck as well um, to test, uh, like, to test games out and how they are to play on that console as well. Um, but I haven't really been using it that much in the past. It's just been uh, enjoyable to test our games, see how is it actually playing on the Steam Deck. How is it something that I enjoy using more? Um, but currently, I think it's mostly just uh, <laughs> decoration on the living room table. Okay, I mean. That's interesting that you're saying that, you know, you're testing, you know, Crusader Kings and, you know, games in general on the Steam Deck. Because I remember when they announced the Steam Deck, one of the things they was adamant about, and I think that, you know, they stuck to it, is that they won't have Steam Deck-specific titles. Uh, obviously, you know, they have, like, Steam Deck Verified, and, you know, they have, like, different tiers, like, how well it runs on, on you know, your Steam Deck. But, you know, how much of a focus... Is a platform like this, you know, Steam Deck, and now you know, Rog Ally as well, and some of these other portable, you know, PC game PCs effect gaming PCs effectively in you know the testing process because it is you know I look at it and I think it is one of those things that could be the de facto you know way of playing games in ten years possibly the way. You know, Nintendo was the king at one point, had like over 90% market share. Uh, but right now, you know, PlayStation and Xbox 
are the two big you know platforms on console you know how things have changed and i see that you know potentially happening with something like the steam deck and some of these other platforms that this could totally shift so how much of it is a focus for companies like paradox to make sure that their games work well on it Mm, steam deck hasn't really been that much of a focus for paradox like in general um i think so i would say for steam deck it's similar to the issue you might have with mobile games it's like of course the game shouldn't be made specifically for steam deck that's at least what steam is saying but some games would play better on steam deck than others for instance, Crusader Kings 3 has a lot of text on it. They have events that will pop up. They'll require you to read. Having a smaller screen would, of course, be an issue in this case, right? So while you can play it and you can definitely enjoy it, it is not made specifically for Steam Deck and might not be as enjoyable as it would be either on console or on PC. Um, and of course, that goes for other games as well. Like some might play very well on Steam Deck due to the graphics and the kind of experience that you're supposed to have might go well on a small screen as well as a larger one. Other games would probably be the opposite, right? They would not play that well or the experience would not be that good on Steam Deck simply because one, they haven't optimized for it. Two, it might not be an experience that's meant to be had on a smaller screen. Okay, fair enough. I, I mean, I totally agree. You know, a portable form factor is one of those things where certain games really lend their, you know, themselves towards it. It's like, you know, mobile, you know, as you mentioned, that some games just work really well on it. You know, a game like Candy Crush, a game like Clash of Clans, for example, you know, those games work fantastic and mm. i don't think they would do nearly as well i can guarantee if their primary focus was playstation xbox you know <laughs> pc even obviously i think with pc with the mouse maybe a bit more because remember you know you used to have games like solitaire and you know like chess used to be a big you know focus for you know companies but it, it wouldn't be the same as it is on mobile but then you see the thing where a company will release Let's say maybe it's an older game, uh, uh, but they'll release a port on mobile, like, you know, Grand Theft Auto, Max mm. Payne, something like that, Knights of the Old Republic. Yes, they'll do well because they've got a fan base and they'll immediately get those sales and those downloads. But when you play it, you just feel like it, it, it's not the same experience. It, it, it is significantly better having it on some sort of whether it's a PC, whether it's a console with, you know, a controller, or maybe even like the Nintendo Switch or Steam Deck where, you know, you've got a smaller screen but not too small and you do have a, you know, proper controller as well. So, yeah, the Steam Deck, for those sort of games that you said, there's a lot of text where it is really ideal to be able to be, you know, close to the screen like on a PC but have, you know, a, a reasonably sized screen. Certain games just, you know, won't work as well. But that's interesting to hear that, you do test it, but it's not like a huge focus. And I think maybe on certain of the titles, you know, ones that lend themselves towards that form factor, it possibly, you know, could be more of a focus, you know, during testing. Mm. Yeah, I think I worked on, like I said earlier, like Forza Horizon in the past. I think that would probably lend itself quite well to Steam Deck. Yeah. Just due to the gameplay style, right? You're not, you don't actually need the tiny details to be visible. You have a, like most players unfocus when they're playing things like a racing game. So you essentially see the road, big obstacles, and your car, right? And then you have like the larger UI elements that tells you speeds, any potential issues, you know, how well you're doing if you're in a lap or something like that. And that's kind of the main thing that needs to be visible. And they are 
usually visible regardless of it's if it's a big or a small screen. Oh yeah, and something like you know, Forza not only can he work well on a platform like the Steam Deck, you know, a portable form factor like that. I think he lends himself really well to it because mm. you know, obviously on that smaller screen, yes, the hardware isn't as powerful as something like a PS5, for example, and obviously it's tuned or like a gaming PC, but because it's a smaller screen, you know, lower resolution, you can still squeeze a lot out of the game, still looks good. And, you know, it lends itself well towards, you know, like a controller, which is effectively why it's attached to a Steam Deck or a ROG Ally. And, you know, that just feels like you're playing it on Xbox or, you know, some racing game on PlayStation. Hmm. So, you know, I noticed that on your LinkedIn, every single role that you've had says on-site, you know, next to it. It, Hmm. Are the sort of roles that you've had, including Art Direct art director currently do they lend themselves more towards being on site versus remote or are you more of an you know an in-office person um hmm i think especially given my role it's like being in office is required is needed uh to be you know like on site with the team being able to act on potential issues that are getting brought up be more personable also for the team members to you know see that you are a person that you do exist in real life and that they can (laughs) approach you with you know issues or any concerns um so i do feel like that is quite important I do currently work uh, at, at Paradox. I have a rule of, like, I think it's uh, three days in office, two days uh, that we can work from office or from home, whatever we like. Uh, so we have a bit of like a hybrid model. And I do, of course, then take some days where I work from home simply because it's easier, especially if I have a meeting heavy day. To work from home means that I can sit by the laptop and that is my meeting room. Um, whereas if I'm in the office, usually I would have to jump around to different meeting rooms, often booked right after each other, right? Which basically means that you would have to be able to teleport between floors to be able to make it. Um, so on those days, I definitely prefer working from home. Um, okay. Yeah, in, in general, I do feel like it's important to have a better to have a rapport with the team to actually be in person, um, especially if you have leadership or management roles. It just okay. works better, um, but then. It's, of course, depends on how well the team performs, you know, uh, off-sites. There is definitely ways you can make that work. Uh, it just needs to it, it needs to be worked on a bit more to see, you know, how you can improve communication, make sure that everyone is aware of what everyone's doing, and make sure that people have a easy way of reaching out to each other throughout the workday if you are working primarily remote. Um, not saying that it doesn't, that it's not possible to do. Okay, so you you know you spoke about you know days that are heavy you know meetings heavy heavily based around meetings. You prefer doing remote because you know the offices are at different parts of the building, different floors, etc. And uh, you know so many times they're booked right after each other, and unless you can teleport or you're, unless you're like Superman, you can just go through the floor. You know you're you know struggling with time. Like is that not something that the company you know actively thinks about because obviously i'm assuming not everyone is remote on that day and if you're potentially running a few minutes late to a meeting purely because you know you have to be able to get to the next meeting like is that not something that you would think the company or you guys that are organizing it would try and solve in time of scheduling plus you know allowing for let's say a bathroom break between meetings 
Yeah, and that's definitely something that I advocate for and also try to do is to like make, of course, a buffer between if I put a meeting, then I'll try to make sure that it's you know, like five to 10 minutes after another meeting. Um, because, but of course, not everyone is aware. Some meetings get put throughout the week and they don't check whether you have something before or after. And then there's only so many meeting rooms, but a lot more meetings happening throughout the day, right? So even though we do on the floor that I'm working, I have several meeting rooms, we do not, especially on more you know, hectic days, we do not have enough meeting rooms to cover everyone's requirements, meaning then meeting rooms or meetings get split out on meeting rooms on different floors because you need one and it might not actually be that you can have one on the current floor that you are at. So then you might have to take a meeting room that's available on the sixth floor while I'm working on the second floor and that adds extra time to get between them. But I mean, that's just something about to try to set up meeting cultures, meeting room culture and things like that. But that ends up being the old joke of having a meeting about meetings, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you've obviously got to get that balance of, you know, refining the process, but not making it so the process of refining the process <laughs> becomes the majority of your, you know, your job, because, you know, if you're building a house, you got to lay bricks, you know, you've got to, you know, set things up, you got to, you know, lay the foundations, but you've also got to plan it as well. But if you're spending all your time planning it, making sure you've got the right amount of bricks, making sure, you know, everything's okay, everyone's okay, the weather's right, everything, but two months pass and you don't lay a single brick, it, it gets to a point where you think, uh, okay, you know, we're wasting time. So, yeah, there's definitely, you know, that, and I think anyone has that sort of issue because some people are of the mentality of let's just go, 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 and they don't want to, you know, sharpen the sword, they don't want to sharpen their axe before they chop down the next tree. Uh, but then there's uh, some people that go the opposite way and they want to over plan. They want to try and over prepare, but then they're like just in meeting after meeting after meeting. And, you know, it, it's sort of, the, you know, that rise of that middle management, you know, BS sort of roles where you're not actually doing anything and you're not producing anything. If anything, you're providing negative value to the company. Mm. Yeah, you're basically referencing that book. What's it called? Bullshit Jobs, right? Yes, um, yes. Yeah, I mean, of course, some of this is sort of like a, a that comes from like the past in, in doing COVID, of course, right? Where you everyone is working from home, so it required more meetings. And then as everyone has gone back to office, a large part of that meeting culture persisted for a, a quite a long period where you still for some reason felt the need, the need to have meetings despite most people being in the office. But also now because we have more of a hybrid culture, a lot of places we see like some people by you know like necessity or simply because it's easier for them work from home on some days, which require you to pretty much always have a meeting room no matter what, because some people might be working from home and in order for them to join in on the meeting, they need to you know, have a specific meeting to be able to join. So a meeting room is then required. Um, so that means that there's, you need a meeting room every time you want to have a small meeting, something that could have been taken you know, by the coffee machine simply because not everyone is in the office. Uh, so that's a bit of an issue with this sort of hybrid model where not everyone is in the office every day. Um, but otherwise, I think you, we have managed to cut down quite a bit on the amount of meetings we have now. Um, 
like found out you know which ones are necessary which ones aren't and also now that we have um, started planning a bit further ahead that then requires fewer sort of impromptu meetings to handle questions that should have been answered months in advance yeah i mean that's definitely an interesting point that you raise is that when you do have some people in the office some people are at home if there's two people in the office one at home and he involves all three people you know you do need a specific meeting place sometimes you know where you you would maybe just go over to the desk lean over their shoulder and maybe grab someone else you know that's you know 10 meters away and say you know what about this what about this points at the screen two minutes later you know you you, you know you've resolved it and mm. or, or you figured it out you've got your next you know you know course of action and you know you go and execute it but you know if let's say there's more than just you two in that room the last thing you know you really want to do is you know whack open zoom it be on loudspeaker and you're talking to someone at home you're disturbing other people or potentially they're disturbing you because if they're trying to you know communicate amongst you know themselves so yeah i, I mean that's definitely a problem i would foresee at any sort of you know, company that has a hybrid, you know, model. And I think, you know, another interesting point you made that during COVID, the necessity for more meetings was required. But then obviously, because people get so used to that sort of meeting culture, because it kind of makes you feel like you've done something, uh, you know, that you've achieved something because you've got other people there. They've attended, you've attended, you spend time, and you know you've come out of it, but you know you got to think: was that meeting there because you specifically needed a meeting, or was it there just due to the way people, you know, happen to be geographically speaking? Yeah, and a lot of times you also end up taking time from people who might not have needed to be there, but have been added to the meeting just in case, mm. right? So while the meeting might have only required three people, because there is potentially more stakeholders, depending on which direction the meeting will go, you then invite eight people to a meeting that should have been free, right? I will say on the benefit side of things though, is that this kind of meeting culture that has been happening in the past and has of course veered more into the present as well, has then also made for a like better, documentation right so like now usually the meeting culture at least your paradox at least for for the team that i'm working with we have like a when you set up a meeting you have to write in the description what is the meeting about what is the you know like the expected result what is it that we should hope to have achieved by the end of the meeting usually we'll also add meeting notes we're using google meets then we have meeting notes where people usually someone is sort of like a secretary of the meeting writing down uh what has happened, um, what the decisions are, and who made these decisions, right? It's always written in the top who is in this meeting, right? Um, so that leaves a paper trail of all decisions, whereas in, in the past, you might ask, you know, like, or you see something is being worked on, you're asking, like, wh- why are you working on this? And it's like, oh, this was a decision that was made a couple of weeks ago. It's like, oh, by who? And sometimes you just get like a shrug emoji in answer, right? And no one really knows. And when they say like, oh, it was this person and that person says, oh, but that's not what I meant. I think you're referring to something else. It becomes a bit difficult to figure out what was the original intent and why things happened this way. But now when we have a bit of like a more structured meeting culture um, with you know specific rules set for what is considered a proper reason for a meeting and what is considered a proper result of a meeting, 
then there is an easier way of finding out, you know, like where what happened and sort of why. Oh yeah, for sure. Like the, it's definitely a problem when you don't have enough context, enough information, and obviously you know people, you know, either ask a lot of questions and then somebody might get annoyed and then that makes the person just fill in the blanks and then they start do working on something for two weeks and it turns out that's not what they meant at all. Mm. Uh, and then obviously because there's no actual documented, you know you know documentation of you know what occurred what conversation occurred the other person just denies it either they deny it because they don't want to be you know blamed or they might just not remember the moment it might have just been an offhanded comment and you know in a previous meeting or just in general and as a result the person has gone off and started spending time two weeks doing something so yes that's obviously you know definitely you know a problem like how do you handle uh yeah, and try and prevent people from just doing meeting after meeting after meeting and not actually doing any work because you know one obviously that can accidentally occur you know just because they think we need more meetings but it could also occur if somebody really doesn't want to do work but they you know just want to jump into meetings because there's it's you know it's work but if their work is their general work is more creative let's say programming drawing or like an artist for example they might find it easier just to be in a meeting where they're talking about it but nothing's ever getting done but they can say you know i was in a meeting for an hour i was in a meeting for two hours you know you can't expect me to be you know writing lines of code whilst i'm I'm in a meeting (laughs) so Mm -hmm. like how do you try and prevent that and try and get the optimal number of meetings well, the ones who are supposed to be in a meeting, technically, usually the leads and the managers are the ones where you can't really avoid it. That is at least part of their function. Like the same with, with directors as well, of course. Right. So that's, that's you know, like a, a large part of the job. Um, but for the people who, you know, like the actual the developers, the ones actually working on the game, it's like those we try to limit the sort of meetings, right? So usually whenever they're in a meeting, it tends to be bigger meetings, right? You know, like, uh, presenting, you know, like the the goals for the next DLC, you know, like uh, working, depending on, of course, discipline, having like a workshops or having, you know, weekly reviews. So we try to set up, you know, structures for, you know, like this is the forum where you ask questions. These are the people who are supposed to be involved. And then usually we can like, invite people who might be part of it, but they're set as optional in the calendar, right? So like they're not required. Um, but can join if they feel like they want to have a bit more of an idea of what, how things are going on. But then they can join from their computer and just work while listening to things in the background. Um, so try to structure it in a way that's more like regular meetings, but not, you know, like impromptu, uh, hey, I think we should have a talk about, you know, like this menu screen or, hey, I have a really cool idea for this new character uh, outfit that we can do. It's like those we try to keep for specific days. Um, where we go through and review the work that's been done and look into, you know, like what are the future tasks? What is the priorities? Are we on time? Are we not? This kind of like normal meetings that you have, right? Um, okay. Otherwise, like for, for leads, directors and managers, it's like, yeah, a, a large part of their week will be meetings, but that's mostly because a lot of par- a big part of it is planning for the future and also talking with other disciplines outside of the immediate development, right? Um, you know, like with marketing, um, with production, of course, and with the uh, audio teams, 
it can be a lot of different things that aren't like part of the core team specifically, but still needs to be involved. And that's usually the managers, leads, directors who has the who is the contact point between the different disciplines. Okay. And, you know, as somebody who, you know, sounds like that you do your fair share of meetings, you know, what sort of project management software, you know, calendar software and just general tools do you use as a, you know, as a part of that for organizing it, for, you know, making it as efficient as possible in, you know, in, in your day-to-day job? Yeah, like usually at most places I work, use Google Meets, um, quite easy to see what's going on you can see others whenever you try to book them you can see their calendar whether they've set themselves as like just busy in general or if you can actually see you know like what is it they're talking about i usually try to leave my calendar as transparent as possible so people can see what it is that i'm doing and if they then feel like hey i see that you have this meeting i have something that like i have some inputs for this uh, that i would like to bring up then either they can bring it up to me or they I can invite them for the meeting if I feel like it would be better for them to be that person. Um, so that's usually how I structure the meetings and make sure that everyone's sort of aware of what's going on. Uh, otherwise, there's different tools for different companies, right? Like have something like Asana, have Confluence, you know, like for documentation, pipelines, stuff like that. So quite a few different tools and it depends on the company what they feel is the best for their um, needs yeah so on your linkedin there's a lot of information about you know the companies you've worked at previously you know your job roles but when you go to the education section it you know it's quite minimal you Mm -hmm. say from 2013 to 2014 you was at somewhere called Game Art, and you think you rolled from work. It was Game Assembly or something. You know, can you you know expand on what that is and you know your education you know prior to coming into the gaming industry? Yeah, sure. So the Game Assembly is a higher vocational school in Malmo, Sweden. I do believe that they have more places where the education is now offered, um, but that's basically where I went like directly from high school. Um, so I, I basically, I've always in the past enjoyed art and was trying to find a place where I would actually be able to turn that into a profession that, you know, I could live off, uh, and sort of combining that with my love of games back when I was younger was just like the perfect opportunity. So we didn't really, I'm from Denmark originally. Um, we didn't really have education for that in Denmark. Um, but I was looking for educations in Sweden and I saw that they had game assembly. Um, so I had some experience basically teaching myself uh, 3ds Max in the past, and then I applied to the game assembly with a portfolio of you know assets that I had made and managed to enter the education. And then through there, I then learned more about you know how to make games. They they basically have a course where uh, the education is basically that you are working with in teams throughout the years and making several different game projects. Back when I started, you start out with like the earliest version of games that existed, kind of like just the, um, what's this sort of like uh, adventure games, you know, like where you just like write like text-based adventure games and then yes. move on from there to newer types of games, like moving fr- throughout the game history from the beginning. Um, and while the programming team sort of like learned to create more and more complex engines um, for the artists, it was more about uh, learning, you know, like how 
how to create more and more complex art assets and how things are working, right? So going from 2D illustration background to like um, sprite-based assets and then into full 3D assets, but, you know, like simple models and then into more complex third-person and first-person games. Um, and along with that, there's also then, of course, individual projects on, you know, like where you're supposed to make assets, you know, like make a mech or a robot, make a character, you know, like do some concept arts and pretty much getting you through like the full spectrum of what a, a very much like a 3D generalist in a way, right? So learning from concept art to character art, hard surface modeling, animation, VFX, and, uh, and environment art. Okay. And, you know, one of the questions I get a lot, you know, from people that want to get into the gaming industry or tech in general is, I don't have a degree or my degree is in something totally unrelated. How do I get into the industry? Did you ever have any pushback from, because, you know, the companies you've worked at have not been small studios where there's only like three of you. You know, they've been big, you know, studios. You know, you've worked on, you know, major AAA projects. Have you ever had pushback where they say, you don't have a degree, you don't have the conventional, you know, education or, you know, education background? Obviously, you know, the, you know, the latter companies, once you've worked at a few companies, you've been in the industry for a, for many years, it's less of an issue. But at, at the start of your career, did you ever have resistance? Mm, not at all. I mean, part of this education is basically offering an internship for people to you know try out work in a company and for the company to try out the intern. Right. So I think that's kind of what was vital here. But I've never had, you know, like, no, you don't have a, a bachelor or master or, or what have you. Right. There's been no sort of requirement for that, at least not in Europe, where I've been mainly working. I cannot really speak for all companies around the world, but at least not in Europe. I've never heard that even happening, okay. especially for for artists. And I think also to programmers and probably also designers. I don't know too much there, um, but there's usually a test that you have to complete, like for artists, that's an art test, like do an asset, do an environment, do something to show your skill beyond what, at least if your portfolio don't sort of like show a hundred percent match, right? Like if your portfolio shows that you're good at doing, you know, general props, but you're not, you know, like you haven't shown a proficiency for environment art of the type that the company would require. And that's the position that you have applied for. Then usually the company would then require you to do an art test to sort of show the required proficiency. Similar for programmers as well. There's also a programming test where they would sort of like ask you to complete a task that shows that you would do well uh, with given task in the company. And that's usually the focus. Like most companies prefer to have, you know, like the the required skill more than the required sort of knowledge, if if I'm explaining it correctly here, right? They, they prefer people to actually know and have knowledge, like have actual experience doing things specifically more than they want them to have a specific background in education. Yeah, I know what you mean. The, you know, they would rather, you know, that you have used Photoshop and, you know, that you have experience in the tool itself uh, rather than sitting in a lecture or and listening to someone talk about art and talking about you know photoshop for example or whatever the tool might be obviously if you have both that's like you know great but mm. yeah it, totally if you have the experience and then if you can demonstrate it on your you know cv or your portfolio somehow that you have you know previous projects you know previous work previous companies 
that's what will definitely get you the you know job and because that's the advice i give to you know anyone because obviously if they want to go down the typical university route that you know there's nothing wrong with that you know go for it but it's not the only route to go down if you are willing to put the work into it you can save potentially a lot of time and definitely a lot of money by you know self-educating yeah actually to that point as well i would add of course this is very much depending on the university but from a lot of people that i know especially within art that has a university background many of them had to actually go out and do a a voca- uh, vocational education specifically to art after university simply because the training in university is like classically a lot of times it's uh specific to um what can say like it's not practice knowledge it's more of a theory which does not really do well especially when a portfolio or specific expertise is required so a lot of people that i've seen in the past who came out of university do not have the practical knowledge to be able to enter a company um which has been like sort of like a bit damning for for that part of education at least here in uh in scandinavia specifically and wider europe as well um i cannot speak specifically to of course u.s education or others um, but that's something that i've seen a lot uh, is like the theoretical knowledge won't really get you very far and you can actually completely do a wave of an education to a big part like vocational school offer the internship route which makes it a lot easier to get a foot in the door but there is the possibility that if you for instance have already practice on your own i would suggest then you know like reach out to people on art station that you see you know like people who are active in the industry usually go for people who are like a bit more can say junior uh junior experience people have been in industry you know like five years or similar of course some seniors might also be more active than others but you know people who have not been in industry for too long tends to be a bit more active on art station so like reach out to them ask people there if they would mind you know like providing feedback from for your portfolio you know like what kind of assets would be good to have if you want to get into for instance their company um, and then you can sort of try to get mentorship through them right and that way you won't really need an internship as much it would still definitely help if you went through the vocational school and got the internship but i think if you actually reach out to people and get mentorship especially if that's the company that you wishes to enter then you can sort of show professionally show your learning and get you know like a recommendation for people who actually work in the company so that's definitely one route of doing it and it definitely will not hurt your chances uh so like always a good route to take okay so you know extending on what you've you know already said what you know specific advice would you give to let's say uh you know an 18 year old that you know wants to get into the gaming industry you know has a passion for art you know they you know they've been drawing since they was a child you know they you know the good they want to become an artist within the industry and eventually become some sort of art director like yourself what advice tips and tricks and also things to avoid would you say mm. well like i said earlier from the educational point of view it's like I've, i definitely maybe i'm a bit biased here but like i would lean more towards the the shorter education that vocational schools offers due to the internship routes um and also they tend to have a higher degree of like entering the, the job markets since that specifically those educations are specifically for that purpose um other than that of course like i mentioned earlier reach out to people on our station who will be able to mentor you if you can and you are able to you know get a hold of someone who works in the 
the company, like the dream studio that you would love to work at, you know, definitely try that. That would help you a lot and teach you a lot about the company before you even join. So that would be a, a huge benefit for you. Um, when it comes to like, once you've joined the industry, of course, then like you start out as an intern or a junior, and then you will have to learn a lot fairly quickly. And of course that can be a very stressful period. I see a lot of juniors who essentially have like almost like imposter syndrome that they don't believe that they're as talented as they need to be to be there because it's quite rare. The company is taking a lot of juniors at the same time. Most people have a tendency to compare themselves to whoever is nearby. And if you are in a place where all the people around you are at minimum experienced and more often than not senior, it can be quite a, a stressful period and challenging. Um, so definitely like give us a shout out to, to the juniors and interns. That's, that is a very normal feeling to have. And that is something that's, you know, it takes time to get over and do not compare yourself to the seniors. Like people who have, you know, like five, 10 years of experience are not the same as someone who's just started. Um, uh, yeah, so of 100%. course. So of course, what you're going to be doing when you first start, you're like, you're going to be learning the actual pipeline, the workflow. It's quite different from company to company, especially due to most companies working with their own proprietary engine. So like the, an in-house engine, which is not the same as Unreal or Unity. So if you come in with the expectation of, it will be like working in Unreal Engine 4, you're probably going to come in for a bit of a surprise. Um, different companies have engines that are more similar to Unreal than others, but most of them will have you know, some things that, are, that you might perceive as lacking compared to workflow that you have gotten accustomed to working with Unity, Unreal, Godot, similar. Um, so that's definitely going to be a, a bit of a learning curve. And not all companies are as good as others at um, you know, keeping things documented Usually they'll use something like Confluence or Asana or similar um, for documentation, but it can be outdated or have not really gone updated to reflect the current state of the engine. So expect to ask a lot of questions. You will probably at some point be annoying your seniors, but that's just how it is. And if they don't want to be annoyed, they can just document things. So probably not say that if they're already annoyed, but you know, <laughs> Imagine saying that to your senior, uh, you're only getting annoyed because I'm asking you questions and you know, I'm only asking you questions because you didn't document your work, so it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. While it is true, for sure, uh, probably not the best to uh, to say in a, in a tense moment already, right? Yeah, or um, in any moment, <laughs> you know, in general, uh, especially to someone that's more senior to you and potentially has the power of you know, getting rid of you potentially or giving you, you know, a bad, you know, bad feedback. I mean, it sort of you depends. Know. I mean, but that's sort of like a, a good segue in a way, right? Because depending on where you're working as well, like in, in Europe and Scandinavia, especially, we have very much what we call like a flat hierarchy. It does not mean that a hierarchy does not exist, but it means that we are quite open for people, you know, like speaking their minds, like a junior can easily tell me about the thing, like something that I have planned out for the future is wrong due to this and this reason. And it's not like I'm gonna throw a fit and say like, leave. Uh, <laughs> that just doesn't happen, right? Um, and being open to critique, regardless for where it comes from, is just a better approach in general, right? Especially like juniors tend to come into the industry with like a fresh perspective and knowledge of new tools, which a lot of seniors and, you know, like higher ups might have become like a bit of like, Jaded, don't have the time to test out new things as much as possible, or don't have the same sort of um, 
inner fire, <laughs> you can say, to keep updated with all of the newest tools at all times, right? So listening to people, regardless of, you know, like what their background is or what, you know, like stage they are in their career is just good practice. Uh, so I would definitely say that depending on, of course, where you work, I don't know if like how, what kind of hierarchy is in all companies, but in generally in Scandinavia, most of Europe will have a fairly flat hierarchy that allows everyone the opportunity to voice their thoughts, um, regardless of whether or not this is a positive or negative thing. Oh yeah, for sure. It's it, you know it's definitely you know something you know very interesting and something you know to think about. So that's you know all the questions that I've got you know more specifically related to you know your job and your experiences. At you know at the end of all my podcasts, I have a you know rapid fire fun generic questions. Are you ready for them? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, if you're running a company, would you rather run a ten person? Or a one thousand person company, and why? Mm, I'll probably run ten person company simply because it's easier to set up structure, right? So, I think any company starting out, if you start out a company tomorrow, you would have to start out with a core team anyway. No one usually starts out with a thousand people. That just wouldn't be a very <laughs> effective way of doing things. Like, start out with a core team, identify, you know, like what is the the pillars of the company, what is the goal, what is the projects that you want to work with, um, what is the company culture supposed to be, and then hire people for those specific purposes, right? If you start with a thousand people, it's going to be very difficult to set any of that because the culture is created by the people. And if you have a thousand people, then those thousand people will create the company culture, regardless of that as a, you know, like a happy a productive place or if that's a toxic workplace and you will no longer have any power over it but if you hire based on what it is that you hope your company should be then you will be able to control what it will become as well okay and would you rather have five million euros up front or half a million a year for the rest of your life and why i mean half a million for the rest of the year just you know basic math seems like that would do better okay and what's your favorite board game, video game, and movie? Board game, I would say backgammon. Video game, probably Prince of Persia. Uh, movie? Which Prince of Persia? Uh, first one, I would say. Sons of Time, I think that's the yeah. first one. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, the first one would probably be the one. <laughs> that's how it's scrolling one. The yeah, audience. side scrolling one, but that's not the one I'm referring to. I'm referring to Sons of Time. Yeah. Um, Movie, I think one of my favorites would probably be A Knight's Tale. Uh, which movie? A Knight's Tale, did you say? Yeah. With uh, Heath Ledger. It's quite a good one. Okay. Uh, well, I don't think I've heard of that one or seen it. What's that one about? Uh, it's basically a, uh, I can say like it's a medieval setting of a, a well, A Knight's Tale. A, a young squire who was basically faking, uh, he takes over after his uh, knight dies without anyone knowing, and then he takes over his identity and then tries to rise in the ranks while hiding who he actually is. It's a very, you know, like uh, interesting story. It has a lot of sort of medieval setting that I enjoy, and at the same time, it has a amazing soundtrack uh, going with the story. Okay. I mean, now that you described it, I haven't seen it, but I think I've seen clips of some sort of medieval movie with Heath Ledger, you know, in the online on youtube so 
Hmm. I mean, I'll definitely check that one out. So what video game are you looking forward to? Because obviously you're in the gaming industry, you know, you're a gamer yourself. What game are you looking forward to? I think uh, Black Myth, I think it was called, right? Sun Wukong, uh, the one that's coming out from China. I think it's called Black Myth. Okay, and and what uh, what is that game for? You know the audience. I mean, it's a third person action adventure type of games from the looks of it, and it just like mostly for me, it's just pure graphics. Looks absolutely amazing. The VFX, the animation, everything looks like it's just like scale up to a thousand. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to see if they can actually you know like deliver on what that has been shown so far. If they can, it would be amazing. Um, but yeah, we'll see a lot of games when they're shown, you know, like the, the early versions of it tends to look amazing shown at E3 and stuff. And then when it gets released, they had to, you know, actually optimize it for consumption and it tends to downscale the graphics a bit. Yeah, that's definitely a problem that, you know, plagues the gaming industry. They'll show something off, sometimes not even on, you know, the actual hardware, some beefed up hardware, or you'll just be a slow segment where they can, you know, uh, you know, get it to run, you know, just for that little bit. Um, but when you actually get hold of the game, it's, you know, nothing like it. Mm. So what's your favorite, you know, games in terms of like a artistic standpoint and also a graphical standpoint? Hmm. Yeah, like it's artistic and graphical standpoint. I think I really enjoyed when I first saw that it was like Limbo. Uh, yeah, I sound completely biased because it's a Danish studio, but um, I really enjoyed that. I think it was an amazing use of graphics, like do do more with less was basically yeah. what they showed, which I think was a really good way of doing it. And it kind of goes to that old saying, you know, like a a product's never perfect until there's nothing left to take away. And I think that they kind of followed that mentality quite well, uh, whether by intention or not. Um, other than that, you of course have games such as uh, Journey, which was you know stunning in its visual storytelling, uh, which I think is still like something to really raise up when it comes to to games. But they they did again, they did a lot with a little, um, really showing the the journey through the game and 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 how that sort of like the the lighting and the environment really gave you an idea of where you were in the game and and what. Um, how well things were, do- were were going and how the story were progressing. Oh yeah, you know those two games are definitely you know amazing games. Have you played Inside from the developers of Limbo? Yeah, yeah, I definitely have as well. I didn't feel quite as I tested that one visually as I did with Limbo. Um, Inside it still looks good; it plays well; it's a good story. Um, but I don't really feel like the they nailed the art style as perfectly as they did with Limbo. Um, I think it's also a very difficult one to follow up on. Like they just hit it so spot on with Limbo. And inside, while it was a great game and a good story, um, I think there was sort of like a disconnect a bit between the, the art style and the story in that case. Yeah, I know what you mean, Lenny. With you know Limbo, it definitely did encapsulate that philosophy that you was you know talking about, where they simplified it so much. It was at a point where they had very little they could take away from it, and I think you know 
you know, you get projects, you get game, you know, games, movies, books, whatever it is, like the sequel or the spiritual, you know, successor to it. You feel that, like the developers and the community feel like they, the ante needs to be upped. And, you know, you see that with Lord of the Rings, the game, I mean, the movies, obviously, I know they're based on books, but there's a similar principle. You look in the first one, uh, uh, you know, Fellowship of the Ring. At the end, the battle is very small scale, very good, but still very small scale. The two towers, you know, you, you're going into what, you know, I think probably tens of thousands of Urukais and, you know, not tens of thousands of good guys, but, you know, still a lot of good guys as well. Again, you're upping the ante even more in the Return of the King. I think you're looking at hundreds of thousands of orcs. And, you know, there's also those, you know, major battles happening in different places. So, you know, it's the, you know they're upping the ante. Lord of the Rings is definitely an example where it worked. But I feel like with Inside and Limbo, they kept the same sort of style gameplay-wise, perspective-wise, but they added more complexity to the visual art style, kind of maybe to, you know, flex or try and test, push themselves, you know, technically speaking, because in terms of just what was going on, that it definitely was better from the perspective of there's more going on, not that they necessarily made a better game, but they definitely did more visually. But again, that issue, what you were saying, that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. Yeah, but I think as well, at, at the same time, it's maybe a bit unfair to compare um, Limbo and Inside because they're not really, they're not, a, it's not a, uh, Inside is not a successor to Limbo. So while I think, again, here as, as sort of like a fan of the title, someone who's played it, there are certain expectations and you always end up a bit comparing titles from the same studio, even though they are not successors of each other, similar to what Lord of the Rings is. Like in that case, having a, a comparison side by side is sort of like fair because it is the same you know, title that is continuing. Um, whereas Inside is like a brand new game and they tried something new they veered a bit more away from, from this sort of uh, unknown horror to more of maybe a bit more of the uh, uncanny to some extent. But I just don't feel like, for me at least, that it it did as much. Like it, it did, the art style didn't really give me as much of a sense of the of the story as Limbo did. I think Limbo was just so well done that it's it's so difficult to follow up on it, right? I think the only way I could really compare a, a similar game, I guess, a bit to both Limbo and Inside, would be Little Nightmares, which is far more you know, like graphic, uh, they've gone into far more efforts to make the graphic look beautiful in that game. But here they're also playing less to the unknown and more into the uncanny horror, right? Like the, the things that you know that just behave differently to what they should. Um, and I think for Little Nightmares, that really worked with them showing more and having more of a moody lighting uh, that sort of like was a bit of the, the vehicle for the story in some sense, right? Yeah, one hundred percent. And and I I know what you mean. It is, it is definitely a comparison that will get made and easily to get made because they're from the same studio. It was the next game as well. It was done in a. It's not like they went from doing a you know a racing game to an FPS game where you can be like, yeah, it's not the same. You know, the, the comparison doesn't seem logical. So there's some logic to the comparison. But yeah, you're right, because it is not a sequel, uh, unlike, you know, Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings, 
you know movies or, or books it, it, it's you know so hard one but I, I agree i i didn't feel the same sort of emotion that i felt when i played limbo compared to playing you know inside and i feel like there were times even though i overall enjoyed the experience and i want to play the game again i feel like there were times i was pushing through it more so because i had played limbo I liked what they did with it, and yeah, it was kind of similar compared to with, with Limbo. I was like, you know, I want to see how this pans mm. out. I want to see the ending. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like on on one hand, of course, it it must sucks a bit that you know, like that you keep getting your new title, your new darling, compared to your previous. When you go like this, has nothing to do with each other, right? Uh, it might be a spiritual successor in a, that it's the same sort of game style. Um, but the overall story, the art is like completely different. But on the other hand, it's like it's a very sort of like <laughs> it's a it's a good bad situation to be in, right? Your first game was such a smash hit success that it's gonna be you're always gonna be having unfavorable comparisons to that. But you know, it still made the studio what it is today to some extent, right? For uh, I think it's called Playdead Studios. Um, so I mean. Yeah, while it, it's it sucks getting comparisons to a previous title that you it's a shadow that it might be difficult to step out of, it still, you know, like allowed the studio to continue on for as long as it had and of course give new titles more um spotlight than it might have otherwise gotten. So I mean it's a good situation to be in regardless. Yeah, it's a difficult one, but it's definitely a great situation to be in. I wonder how much of you know, how much pressure there is once you do something like limbo it does really well for the type of game it is it's critically acclaimed you know if you speak to probably anyone that's actually played it you know they love the game uh, you know when you're making your next game to you know kind of think do i want to do something totally different or you know do i kind of want to play it safe because you know i I think that's definitely another difficult position to be in because if you say you know i'm not going to do limbo 2 maybe that might come out later on but you know right now i'm not doing limbo 2 i'm not even going to do a game that feels similar like inside i'm going to go to something totally different uh because because it's kind of an easy sell to, mm. to to be able to say you know i made a game you know we've made a game it's the, the you know the similarities or you don't even need to say people will fill in the blanks for you like the media will sell it for you because you know made by you know the limbo developers very mm. similar but the big graphics like you know if it's to say stuff like that people will just be like oh i want to get that whereas if they just suddenly say oh the limbo developers are making a football game People might be like, mm. so I think some people will be intrigued, but I think a lot of people will be like, oh, I'd rather just stick with FIFA. Yeah, I mean, it's always going to be from fans, regardless of like if you go into like a completely new genre of a game. There's always going to be an expectation, right? If you're you know, limbo, it's like even if you do like a third person, you know, shooter or action adventure type of game, it's probably going to have you know like some dark mystique to it. Um, similar to for like other companies if they were doing a new game you would similar to like the question that you asked me in the beginning right like if you if i had worked at like let's say only king for my entire career and then go over to paradox would it become distinctly obvious that this is a, a person who has prior uh like probably only worked at you know like candy course or something else right you would probably see that very visibly the same with studios like if their primary knowledge and you know like the games that they worked on is like all these kind of dark mysterious games 
even if they go to a completely different title, you would at least to some extent expect to have some of those elements come through. Um, so I don't think you can ever really get step away from what sort of like put your studio name on the map, nor should you really want to, to some extent, right? Um, if you, as a studio, if you've grown big enough and you want to do that, then normally what a lot of studios do is that they uh, diversify, right? They start branching out. So same studios, you know, like Paradox have a lot of subsidiaries and same as like, you know, like a work Avalanche in the past, they also have now subsidiary studios who are part of the like the main company, but because the subsidiaries have different names, such as systemic reactions from Avalanche, or here when I'm working like Paradox Studios Black, um, then there's like a way to separate the games from each other, like from the bigger sort of like identity that the company has created. So that was, that's usually what would happen when a company grows big enough to want to, you know, like diversify, try completely new genres, then they kind of tend to then also branch the company out to so have like, you know, new names attached to it. Yeah, 100%. I think that's definitely you know, a good way to go when you're at that size and you do want to do, you know, something totally different. But I, I think some people might fear that, okay, you know, there's a lot of respect and, you know, sort of attention on this particular brand and name. If I to do something totally different, and I don't really attach much of a name of, you know, my current, you know, the current, you know, brand to it. Is it going to be successful? Am I going to have to start from scratch? Because it's, you know, and I think it's logical, you know, you know, you've worked hard, you know, you've worked hard to create that brand, you know, that recognition, that community. Do you really want to almost do that again uh, for another title? Or do you want to just kind of take, bring that community over to your next title? you know, via the easy route. Yeah, and you can see that in, in, in Paradox, right? They've like, you know, doubled down and there's like hyper, like we hyper specialized on the grand strategy games in a way, right? We do have, you know, like other studios that we that we publish for um, that then works on other titles. And of course, there's also some new game development happening in the background as well. But the overall like identity of Paradox is the grand strategy games, and that's what they're working on, right? So then they just then they do new versions of that, you know, like set in different historical periods, set in space, like Stellaris, but also like following the same, you know, like ambition, the same like they're not mechanically the same, all of them, but they follow the same thread, you can say, right? And I think that's one way, that's definitely one way of going about it. It's like, this is something that you're doing really well. This is a niche market you, to some extent, have cornered, right? So that you have a fan base that know what you're, what to expect from you, know what you will deliver, even if you do a totally new or a, a new setting for the game. They know sort of like what the mechanics will be, that they know how to play the game, especially in you know, like longtime fans of Paradox games. And new users will also be able to, you know, like they play uh, one Paris game and they are then more likely to also like play other games because they, okay, now they have understood the mechanics and a lot of this will carry over to another title. So they're, sort of be, they're able to jump within the entire catalog of games and get new experiences that has some similar mechanics that allows them easier, you know, like uh, starting off points. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, my final question is a two-parter. Does money buy you happiness and what does a good life mean to you? 
<laughs> no, I would not say that money buys you happiness. I mean, it buys you, we can say like in a, it's a more relaxed situation in a way, right? Like you do not have any concerns in the back of your mind, but if you're in an unhappy period of your life, having more money will likely not improve on that. So yeah, no, I would not say money buys your happiness. It just buys relief in a way, right? Okay. And, you know, what does a good life mean to you then? Well, a good life is, you know, basically finding what you do enjoy to do, like in your downtime, you know, like when you're away from work, um, whatever you do enjoy doing. It's like for me, I really enjoy reading. Um, I enjoy, you know, like sitting, working on pet projects, uh, of course, being out with friends and things like that. Those are fairly like simple things, right? They're not things that require a ton of money, like I said earlier. So, I mean, finding the things that you do enjoy in your everyday life and then, you know, giving yourself the time and opportunity to pursue more of that. I say that's what is a happy life, right? I mean, I find that very interesting, but I do like I do like it because a lot of people, when I ask that, I ask like literally everyone, you know, these questions, you know, these rapid fire questions. You mm. know, the answer I usually get of what does a good life mean to you is primarily usually either family or career, like those are the two things. But the fact that you said finding something that you enjoy and that i guess you know gives you you know sense of happiness or value outside of work mm. uh, and making it so uh, uh, you know is it fair to say that you're saying that work you know can be fun and enjoyable but that's it's a means to an end and the end should be what you enjoy outside of work, you know, hobbies, you know, you say you're like hanging out with friends, reading, you know, is that basically what you're you know, getting at? Yeah. So what I mean is basically for work, for friends, for family, you know, like from any sort of like outside influences that can, of course, both uh, make you happier, make you enjoy life more, make you enjoy your everyday more. Those are still sort of outside influences. You know, the, the happiness that you will gain from that can both go up and down, right? Of course, hopefully every day when you go to work, you're happy, you're fulfilled, you're motivated. That is rarely always the case, right? So for me, finding something that I just, that recharges my battery, something that I just enjoy doing moment to moment, doing my downtime, like between work, just like in, in the weekend in some periods. You know, like that to me is, is very meaningful. Like that's what allows me to sort of have an equilibrium in a way, right? Of course, I definitely enjoy, you know, like spending time with my family. Um, given that they're in another country, it's 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 not as often I can meet them as I would want to. And of course, I spend, you know, like a lot of time with my partner. We go out enjoying, you know, like on the weekends, go out, you know, like eat, shop, just enjoy each other's uh, present, and, you know, like talk and have fun. Um and same with like friends as well, right? But that's, you, know, you still need, to me at least, I need um, to sort of have the sort of equilibrium moment where I just like sit down, do something that I enjoy in the moment. For me, that's a lot of times I enjoy reading, just like sit down, read, it relaxes my mind, allows me to just decompress from, you know, like might be stressful at work or, you know, other things that I just like need to sort of get out of my mind and then do something else for a period of time. And once I've done that for some time, then I have room and energy to do other things that might require uh, said energy. 
Um, so for me, I, I sort of like try to find the happiness in, in the small moments between other things. Um, not saying that other moments are not happy, of course, but just, you know, like the equilibrium that I need. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting response and something that I don't really get on the podcast, but I do, you know, l- like that response because, you know, we're too caught up in our, you know, careers a lot of the time. Then, And, uh, you know, you made a really good point about, your career might be going well now in terms of you enjoying it or, you know, growing, for example, but there'll be times where it's not going the way you want it to. It isn't, it is maybe an upsetting time, whether, you know, it's truly an upsetting time or you're upset and, you know, but it does not really, you know, that much wrong with it, whatever it is, but there you, you will go, you know, in ups and downs in your career. So yeah, I like that you're saying, you know, if you focus solely on getting the happiness from your career, you probably will be disappointed, but then finding something to, you know, find interesting, you know, get your teeth sunk into outside of work, you know, obviously getting in a relationship, friends, family, you know, whether that's gaming, you know, you said reading, you know, what sort of books, you know, you know, do you read, you know, for fun and for enjoyment? it's a bit mixed right it's like i both enjoy things that are more kind of like things are like practical books i really enjoy reading about psychology about history otherwise like when i'm just relaxing then i treat books like movies i'll read you know like novels like a lot of fantasy novels and things like that that i enjoy reading um so for me that's all like almost like you know, movies like i just read a movie so to say um and then i can read it at my own you know like uh speed what if i want to go back and read something like oh this is really interesting sometimes i get ideas for like mechanics and games it's like oh this is like a really cool thing that might you know like be useful to some games um or i can see like how something like this might be implemented right so i still have things that could relate back to what i do in my work life um and like especially reading about psychology and things like that is also something that I can, you know, like use when I'm talking to friends and family, like maybe people are going through a difficult time. So perhaps I'm able to better able to help people talk through their their problems or what they're facing at the moment, you know, like be a better friend, be a better partner, be there for my family in some cases. So there's still something I gain through, like in my in my personal life, in my connection with my job and, and friends and family. But something that I find more, you know, like relaxing to do on a day-to-day basis. Like what you said with job earlier as well, you know, like your career will always have, you know, like peaks and troughs that you, you can't really control, right? You know, like some years you might, you know, you might get a promotion, you might get a huge salary bump. Other years the company's not doing so well. You might not have performed as well as you felt you had, or you know, like have that set to you doing your your review. You know, like uh, your employees, you know, like might. your your team there might be people who are like leaving uh, people who have like personal issues that makes it very difficult for them to to work and of course you try to help them talk through their issues i mean we just had here at uh, a paradox some studios that we closed which you know like i i work personally with the people there so of course that's also a very difficult situation more so for them obviously but of course very difficult you know like you're, you're talking with people who are going through a crisis in their life, right? Um, and that's not something that's beyond your control, like unless you own the studio, and even then, you you know you're not fully in control. It depends on how well your studio is doing overall. Um, so I mean, those things are always going to impact you. So I find it really important to have something that just 
lets you settle in the moment, right? Let's things slide off you a bit, uh, focus on something else, gather some energy, like don't think too much about what you've been doing during the day, you know, like things that are stressing you out. Just let it slide off, almost like meditating a bit in a way, right? At least that's how I treat it. Well, fair enough. And I think that's definitely a good way you know, to approach it. So, you know, before we wrap up, what's your you know, favorite two books that are more, you know, nonfiction, whether that's biographies or, you know, psychology history, you know, more the let's say the educational books mm. uh, type of thing. And then the, you know, two favorite, you know, novels, fictional. Side of mm. I think it was light and color. I think it's one of the books that I really enjoy, uh, like reading that's like specific, you know, for, um, or imaginative realism as well. It's like, Thing from this the same offer it's like really good when it comes to you know like improving your composition your lighting your your like the colors that you're using it seems like great books um regardless of whether you're working in the game industry movies concept art illustrations amazing um i think was like it was philip simbaros i think it was the lucifer effects like a really dark book so i would say like you know it's, it's not for the faint of heart but like very educational um it's the author who also did the uh famous experience the stanford prison experiments that's also oh. part of the book it's a very interesting reads um but quite dark as well so like if you already are predisposed to having a bit of like a cynical viewpoint of humanity it might not be the best one to read oh what's that book called again uh the lucifer effect the lucifer effect yeah because i'm pretty well aware of the stanford prison experiment you know read about him obviously seen the movie as well and it's definitely very interesting but the lucifer effect uh, that way we'll check that one out so what about you know fictional books do you say you you know you read novels for example oh yeah that's quite a few i've gone through here uh let's see i can think like a quite a few of read but i, I read quite a bit on what's called like the a page that's called royal road which is basically where authors can start you know like putting out their work before they actually publish it on like amazon and things like that so a lot of them are like currently ongoing still um i think one of the ones that i really enjoyed reading in the past uh not on royal road but it's like the name of the wind was like a super good book like had great mechanics for the the magic system they had in there, like a good story uh, to like explain how everything works, like explain the world. I think it was a great book. Um, there's two or three books out right now, I believe. Uh, still not finished last I checked, so I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting the the next couple of books in that series. Otherwise, of course, I've read you know like both the Harry Potter series and the Lord of the Rings. Um, like again, amazing books. Oh. Okay. I think that's sort of like the ones I would put the highest on my list, you know, like especially if you know an introduction to to fantasy books. Okay, and what was that website or platform that you mentioned where they can put their, you know, authors put their books on, you know, before they're released and this they might still be in progress. Yeah, it's called the uh, Royal Road. It's like a quite a good platform. It's like by no means are the you know like the books perfect. Like I said, it's like works in in progress for a lot of the part but uh, it's it's amazing to see like the the quality a lot of times of the work that get put in there okay uh, uh, is that kind of like a 
a Kickstarter kind of thing or not really Kickstarter. I mean, they do have uh, patrons and, and other things where you can support the offers. A lot of times they didn't offer you to read chapters ahead on their Patreon accounts and things like that. Um, but yeah, a lot of times it's, you know, like offers are sharing in there to like get feedback, you know, like essentially get early reviews from like almost like user research in a way, right? They're like, can, can post things in there and then see how well it does. And then of course, Patreon usually the ones who are very appreciated by the, the audience. They tend to also like do quite well on their Patreon account. So they can sort of get sponsored as they write before they then publish. And then hopefully their books do really well on the, on Amazon, like Kindle Unlimited or other things that they usually tend to go with. Okay. I mean, I'll definitely check that platform out. It's not a platform that I've heard of, but I'll have a look. So that's it, everyone, for this week's episode of FireDev. I just want to thank you, Lenny, for taking the time to come onto the podcast today. It was really informative. It was really interesting to hear from somebody you know that's worked in these big studios and somebody that is like an art director as well. So thank you very much, Lenny. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been super interesting to be on here as well and, and get these kind of questions that I don't really usually get on a day-to-day basis. Fantastic. And, uh, interesting to think about as well, a lot of these questions. Yeah, sometimes it's, it's you know interesting to you know reflect and actually kind of think about it from a non-career standpoint because sometimes certain things like this you don't think about as much. Some of the topics that you know we've covered, but it, mm. you know it's always nice to kind of think about it, especially when it's not in like a interview formal setting where there's there's not really any stakes. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very educational to get like a like questions from a different perspective in a way, right? And then try to think about it in a new, like from a different perspective. 100%. So yeah, again, I want to thank you, Lenny, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode. I will see you next week on FireDev. Bye-bye.